um, which is topical. And, you know, there's some stuff that happened recently that involves monarchy. And, yeah, so it, it's a good topic to be on. That was in Lord's Providence. I wrote this before and maybe had a joke that I'm not going to say anymore because uh, we're going be, to be sensitive to people grieving. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, so I'm super excited to be here with you all, and I'm super excited to get to just share some of the word and share about this narrative that God's been weaving. If we want to go ahead and put that title slide up there. Um, but what I will talk about is I think as Americans, you can go ahead and go to the second one too because I'm going to skip the joke. There's, there's no point in, in waiting for it. We're going to be talking about monarchy, so we're talking about, you know, the royal monarchy, um, just kind of introduce it. I don't know about y'all, but being American, I think I've always had, like, a hatred of, of kings. Uh, I think that's just, like, honestly, like, I can think from a young age being like, yeah, those are, just, those are bad people, all of them. Like, they're, they're greedy. Because, because when you grow up going to American school systems, American history is all about, we beat the king and we got free and freedom. Like, that's what it's about. So much of our narrative is that, that I, I really think I had this really bad connotation of what a king is. Um, that was our, our queen up until today. Um, coming to Gig Harbor and coming to Chapel Hill specifically, though, I have coworkers that are British. And they celebrated the Platinum Jubilee. It was like a big deal for them. 70 years of a queen reigning. It was a celebration for them. Again, being American, I'm like, shouldn't she be, like, mad about her tyranny? Like, she's been reigning over you for 70 years. But they, they celebrated it. Honestly, you know, the, the monarchy today is different than the monarchy in the past. But it was so weird to me to hear, like, yeah, we're going to a jubilee party. I'm like, I don't know what that is. What does jubilee even mean? I still don't know what jubilee means. But they celebrated it, and it was a lot of fun for them. And they also did it with their friend from Australia, who apparently still liked the monarchy. I thought they also were at our boat. But no, they're with them. They, they like that. They're part of the Commonwealth. Same with Canada. Um, so it's kind of been a cool thing as I've, as I've gotten older and kind of reworked that and, and actually seen that kingship is part of God's design and part of, part of God's plan. And that's, that's weird for me, again, because I thought the goal was to get away from kings. But God's like, no, I have a plan with kingship. Um, and kingship's not a new concept. Obviously, it is old, but it's really old. As long as people could take power, people have wanted power. So we've seen kings. When y'all got to talk about judges and the cycles that Israel was in when they first got in the promised land, you saw them fight a lot of kings. It was very common. We're actually going to talk about a little bit how that influenced them as well. Um, before we get into that, before I get into the word, I love to pray for us. Um, and, and when I do this, I also want to invite y'all to pray. So I'll, I'll guide y'all a little bit, but just get a little time to be with the Lord, because if he's not here, what's the point? Um, if you want to bow your heads with me. First, I want to ask that y'all can just pray for yourself for a second. Pray that the Lord can open your eyes. If this is scripture you're used to, if you've heard before, if this is a concept you know, that the Lord can just speak to you in a new way through this um, today. Next, I invite you to to pray for the people in the room, Uh, maybe your neighbors. If you know them by name, pray for them, that the Lord can give them new eyes and a receptive heart to his word that we're going to get to read today. And lastly, I invite y'all to pray for me um, as I speak, that I'm not speaking me, that it's not Evan's words that are coming through, but it's the Lord's words, that I'm sticking to Scripture, I'm sticking to what is true, what is, what is gospel. Um, I'd ask y'all to pray for me right now. Heavenly Father, we just invite your spirit into this room. Father, we, we invite your spirit into our hearts and our lives, Lord, as I, as I preach Father, let it be your words, not my words. Um, let let your, your story, your narrative, your vision come through this, Father. 
Um, and I, I hope that we can just leave this place not with, man, that was a good sermon, but I, but I, could, I could see the Lord. That, that's my prayer right now, Father, that we can just see you, see you through your scripture, through, you, through the narrative that you've been weaving, Father. I'm just coming to this place and, and give us those eyes. Let up in your son's name. Amen. Um, so when we're talking about the transition from, from cycles and judges into kings, I think it's really important first on our next slide to talk about what the difference between a judge and a king is. Honestly, for the longest time, I thought they were pretty much the same thing, but different names. Um, they're not. I think there's some similarities that interweave between them, but there's, there's some pretty distinct ones. And I, I kind of picked out three that I thought were really important to note. And the first thing with, with judges is judges are just called in specific moments of crisis. So when, when Israel needed to be saved, the Lord would call a judge to the rescue. Kings, on the other hand, they, they reign. They reign indefinitely um, until they pass or they are dethroned or beheaded, whichever comes first. Um, and and that, that's how a king reigned. A judge is called for a moment king's reign as sovereign. The second big one is that when a judge's t- task was done, they're done. And, and then sometimes they would reign as kind of a mediator, but they weren't in the same necessary role of, of authoritative figure after, after the saving had happened. Um, and there's sometimes gaps between judges. There wasn't always a need for a judge to be reigning over periods. Kings, on the other hand, reign until death or dethroning or beheading, and then a secession would occur. There always needed to be another king unless the government's changed. And usually it was hereditary. Um, most of the time it's hereditary. Uh, when, when a king is dethroned, it's usually their child, usually a male heir. Um, and the last big thing, though, and this is actually the really important part, right? The other two, you can say there's nuances where they kind of weave in between each other. Um, but a judge didn't issue a unified governance throughout all of Israel. For, for, for the time in the cycles, the tribes were largely independent. Obviously, they were unified by religion. They had the Levites that unified them in a lot of their practices and obviously God's word. But there wasn't a central government that was unifying everything. When a king is there, all of the tribes of Israel were unified into one government, into a kingdom, right? So if you have a king, a king reigns over a kingdom. So the kingdom of Israel starts when a king reigns over Israel. The same way that a count would run a county. And dukes reigned over something, a dukedom or a dookie. I don't know. Is anyone like a, an expert in, in medieval governance in here that can tell me? A what? A duchy. a duchy. There is some experts. I love it. So dukes reigned over duchies. And there's other titles too. And they reigned over specific things. So a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel starts when a king runs over them. That is what they are sovereign over. I mean, I think it's just important to note that, that that last component, that true rigid government, is really where this big difference comes. Israel is unified under one human leader, obviously before they were under God's leadership. We'll get to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but this human leadership, the king over them. So if we go to our next slide, we're going to get to talk about Israel's cry for a king. So they've been in this cycle of judges, and now they are crying, asking the Lord, we want a king. So I don't know exactly where you ended, but I'll give you a little recap if you'll end it here. Um, the, the cycle period when, when Israel was, was reigned and saved by these judges ends with Samuel. Um, Samuel was not only a prophet, but he was a judge. And, and really not ends with, with Samuel's term as judge, but when he gave his children the role of judges, um, his two sons. And they were really bad. They were really bad at being judges. They were crooked and they were corrupt. And the people hated them. So Samuel is a great guy. Obviously, Samuel's a hero we see throughout scripture, and he, what we're going to be reading from is First and Second Samuel, so he's pretty important to, to the narrative of God. But his, his sons were bad leaders, 
um, and actually made Israel go, you know what, we, we're done with this whole judge thing. Like, this was it. And there were some bad judges. I think y'all heard probably some of them. Samson was a good warrior, but he wasn't a good judge. Um, but it was finally Samuel's children that made them go, okay, we need something completely different. And so we're going to read real quick, if y'all want to join me, in 1 Samuel 8. And we're going to put this up on the screen. And we're just going to look at what their cry was. So we pick up in 1 Samuel 8, verses 5. And we're just going to read through 7. And he said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people they, in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So, so, the elders come and they say, hey, your sons are horrible judges. We're done with the judges. Give us a king like the other nations have. Right? And Samuel's deeply grieved by this. And he's, he's reluctant to say yes. He doesn't want to say yes to them. Maybe there's some fatherly, my shoelace is untied. That's going to bother me, but we're going to keep going. Y'all can look at it now. Y'all maybe didn't notice until now. Um, Samuel, Samuel's a little bit bothered that his sons have been rejected. But what he's really bothered with and what's ultimately important is that God had been rejected as king. Right? God has been rejected as people. And, and what God says in counseling is, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're not saying you're a bad leader. They are saying your sons are bad leaders. They're not saying you have failed, but they've rejected me as their king. And, 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 but obey them. They're, they're calling for this, obey them. And, and what's important to note here, and, and I think it's really cool, and it's something I really I, I knew about, but in, in researching for the sermon, really got to understand more. God's plan for, for kingship wasn't just this thing that was revealed in this moment. We actually see God implementing rules for what a king would do in Deuteronomy. From the beginning, from, from the time that scriptures were, were being compiled and the law was being compiled, God had, was implementing systems for what a king... It's not going to be up on the screen, but if y'all want to go, if you don't believe me, you can check the facts in scripture. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 talks about God and his role for kings. So what he, what he says is pretty much is when you come into your holy land, you're going to look around and long for a king. And you're going to come and say, give us a king like the other nations. Literally, like, ver- verbatim in ESV, um, that you're going to do this. And that's what they do. So God's plan was always for kingship, but it still greatly grieved the Lord that they would reject him as their king. Reject them as their king. And I have slide six. I have something up there. Um, I think it's two points. So Israel rejected God as their king. That's the first big thing, right? When we see what's happening of kingship, they said, God, we don't want you. We want a human king. And then they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be the other people. Have you ever heard like keeping up with the Joneses, right? When you're looking around the people around you and like, man, I know I'm happy now, but they have it better than me, and I want to be like them, and that's where I'm going to be happy. God's, God wasn't mad about them wanting a king. He, he had known from the beginning and had said in Scripture, given them rules for what it's going to look like, that they were going to have a king over them. That was his plan, his design. But what he was heartbroken over is that their heart wasn't to be more like God and to worship God. Their heart was to be like the other people. That his people had rejected him. Right? That broke God's heart. It grieved him that this would happen. Um, God's goal for Israel was to set them apart as a nation. God's goal for us as the church is to set us apart as a people. We shouldn't long to be like the world when we've been set apart from them. That's what holy means, to be set apart. A holy nation, Israel, was supposed to be different than the world. And yet they looked around them and they said, no, we want what they have. And that grieved the Lord. I know in my life when I've looked around, I'm sure I've grieved the Lord when I said, no, I want to be like them. I get it, you've called me to something better. You've called me to something special. But Lord, I don't know. That looks kind of fun. I kind of want to do what they're doing. I think that grieves the Lord. 
um, and his desires for us. So, so the Lord ultimately gives, not gives in, it was in his design, he's sovereign, he knows it's happening, but he, he does say, hey, I will implement a king over y'all, um, but he gives them a warning, and I'm just going to summarize this for y'all so we're not reading all of First and Second Samuel. Um, he gives them a warning that this king would take from them. There was, he was going to take their sons, he was going to take their daughters, he was going to take their best of everything, and that they would be his servants. And that was the deal. He said, hey, y'all can do this, but this is what's going to happen. They said, yep, we want it. We're going to take that deal. We're going to take having everything taken from us, and then we're going to be his servants. I don't know about y'all. I play fantasy football. I, wouldn't, I would decline that trade. I don't want that one. Uh, I'll take God as my king, and I won't do this. Everyone who doesn't play fantasy football, it's not a good trade. <laughs> I'm going to summarize it that way. Um, but on our next slide, we'll actually see what God does. So even though God felt like he was being rejected, God was still sovereign. And God was going to choose who their king was going to be. And God's first choice for king, the first king we see over Israel, um, is actually God's kind of lesson to them. He, he is showing them what a human, a, a human-based decided king would look like. Um, and, and this king is Saul. And so Saul was called by human standards. He was a tall man. He was what you would think a leader would look like. Um, it, it, we kind of see, too, that when he, was, when he was younger, he was kind of more obedient to God. He was humble. He was shy. But all but by standards of humans, he was the person, man, that would be the QB in your school. Like, he was tall. He's good looking. He had it. Everyone would be like, yeah, he's, he's a cool guy. Like, that's who Saul was. Um, and, and, and through success, Saul ultimately had his heart kind of moved away from God. He started to become more and more prideful in who he was. So this is, this, is, this is Israel's human good king. And we start seeing him go into pride in, in areas just away from the Lord. Um, and then God calls Saul into a, actually a really holy mission. Um, and it's kind of, when you think about it from humans, it's kind of crazy. He calls them to completely wipe, wipe away the Amalekites. Um, which, again, when we see in the Old Testament, we see God do some radical stuff to keep things holy. And so wiping out a whole people is kind of crazy. Uh, but I want to give a little context. Again, this is a big weaving of God's narrative. The Amalekites were the first people to attack Israel as they came out of, of, of Egypt. Out of their, in their exodus, when they're coming out of Egypt, when they're coming into the land, they were still in exile. Not exile, but they weren't, they weren't in the Holy Land. I guess they, I think it's before exile, but they were not in the Holy Land. They were attacked by the Amalekites. And so God saves them and ultimately gives to Moses, like, hey, I will give vengeance upon them for what they did to you, for attacking you, this lowly nation, trying to prey upon y'all. And so now Saul, as the first king of Israel in the promised land, is taking on that vengeance that God had set in motion. So God is, God is rectifying a promise that he made. God's a promise keeper to Moses and his people to, to cleanse this wrong that had happened. And so he called the first king to do it. Obviously, that makes sense. They're now established nation. This is his chance to do something great. Saul had, all their, had fought other battles at this point and had become quite prideful, to be, to be fair. Um, and so Saul goes and fights the Amalekites, but he does it again to human standards. He doesn't destroy all they have. He doesn't throw it all away. He actually captures their king, which, again, from a strategy point of view, I don't know if you've ever seen Game of Thrones. That's a good idea. Um, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, I cannot suggest you do it from stage. Um, <laughs> Don't watch it. It's not godly. Um, but it's advantageous to have a captive. And so, so it makes sense from a human standard for Saul to do that. Also, instead of devoting everything they have to destruction, he keeps what's good. He decides from their stuff, man, this is something good. I want it. So we're going to take that. This is something that's be useful for a kingdom. We're going to take that. When God had told him to destroy everything, and again, from human standards, that makes sense. You won the war. You get the good stuff. But God had called him to destroy everything. 
And in the end, on his way back, he builds a shrine to himself to celebrate his success and how he obeyed the Lord. And anyone knows when what comes, comes after uh, pride, it's the fall. And so Saul comes back, and he is, he is confronted by Samuel. And we're going to pick that up. And this is 1 Samuel, um, this is 1 Samuel, I think it's 15. 15 verses 8. No, verses 10. It slides 8 and 11. So we can go to the next one, sorry. Um, 1 Samuel 15 verses 10. And I'll read there um, on. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has, had not, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and, to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he, went up, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel cried to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, blessed be, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people have spared the best of their sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your eyes, you are not the head of the, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took, took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, the, to the sacrifice, the devoted the best of things to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So what Samuel ultimately says when he's confronted is, it wasn't me. And, and we can put up a slide up here. These, these are the excuses that, that Saul gives. First, he blames his people. So right, Saul is the king of this nation. And the first thing he does is go, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I get that we didn't do exactly what you wanted, but it wasn't me. Man, they, the people, they brought the, peop, the, the oxen. The people brought it here. It wasn't me. I didn't do any of this. He immediately pushes the blame onto his subjects, his kingdom. I don't know if you all know much about leadership, um, but, if, but if the ship's going the wrong way, it's the captain's fault. It's always the captain's fault. The second thing is he includes himself only in the obedience. He says, the people they have brought, but I, I obeyed the Lord. I did what he wanted me to do. And then he justifies why he sinned, right? He puts it in human terms. We have kept the best, and we have devoted the rest to destruction, but we kept the best to sacrifice to you. Man, I care about you, God. I didn't listen to you. I didn't obey what you said, but I did it because I wanted to worship you the way I wanted to. 
And the last thing is he, he claimed it for spiritual reasons. So that's going back to the sacrifice, right? He said, God, it was for you. I, I disobeyed you because I love you so much. I don't think it's a good argument. And, I don't know, and God didn't either, by the way. I'm, I'm skipping a, a section here where God says to him, I'll just read it. It's not on the screen, but has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God care about our sacrifices or offerings as much as he cares about obedience? And that's a rhetorical question because obviously it's no. Man, God longs for our hearts to align with his, to love him. He doesn't just want these sacrifices when we mess up. I know that's kind of a hard thing. We are in a grace-based system where Jesus died for us. We're totally in grace. But God still wants our obedience. He wants us to listen to his word. And it's not just out of this controlling thing. He doesn't just want to tell you what to do because I'm God and you've got to listen to me. No, it's because he loves you. He knows what is best for you. And he knows what, what sin does to your heart, even, in, even in, in a graced existence, even in a saved existence. He wants us to be avoiding that. Obedience to God is what, what, what he longs for us. And again, it's not, it's not a right or wrong, a workspace by any means, but it is his heart for us. And we can show how much we love the Lord by how we obey him. And, and, and ultimately, Saul is unable to admit his failure. He's unable to repent. He blames it on the people. He says, I have been perfect. And, and I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're just caught in a lie and you just keep making it worse. You're like... I can't think of an example, but you're caught in a lie, you know, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to lie my way out of this. You're caught in an example of a lie, and you just keep going, and you keep digging, you keep digging, and finally you're like pretending that fairies took your undies, and that's why you got to work late that day. And you're like, there's no way in the world this is what happened. And everybody knows it. They knew from the very beginning that you just got Starbucks. You have it in your hand, and the line was long. You could have just said that. They wasn't you there on time anyways, but it's easier just to own it from the beginning. So Saul has dug this hole, and God is angry with him. So much so that God rejects Saul as king. He regrets that he'd ever made him king. Because Saul had shown more interest in the approval of the people and his image before them than he did about God. Right? What, what, was, what was Saul's issue here? It was pride. Saul wanted to be the great king, this king that brought spoils. He wanted to be the conqueror, yes, but he only wanted God to be there when it benefited him. And he was a very beautiful, not beautiful, it's actually, it's, it's, it's very damning of Saul. It's not beautiful, but it's very indicative. When Saul is speaking to Samuel, and says, I have obeyed your God. He wasn't Saul's God. There was no, there was no part of that that he wanted to own. God wasn't his God. It was, it was Samuel's God. And then he was Saul's God when it benefited him. But any other moment when he wanted to disobey, no, that was your God who told me that. Not, not my God. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you're, where you're, in, you're in sin or like something's pulling you're like, I don't know, that might be that church's God, but I don't know if that's my God. That's just a lie that the devil wants us to tell to ourselves, right? That's not, that's not my God. We want to distance and, and sever ourselves. Um, I don't know if you've read a lot of Samuel and Kings. But there's some brutal stuff in there. Um, so, I mean, it's actually pretty good. Like, good reading. Uh, it's kind of exciting. And what, what happens after this is Saul rejects him, says that the, the favor of the Lord has gone away, away from you. And then Samuel, again, former judge but prophet, hacks King Agag to pieces. Like, that's, that's, what, that's what ESV translates it as. He, before Israel, rectifies the wrong that Saul had done. And, and this, this, this prophet hacks the man. And, and that's, that is what the Lord had called them to do from the beginning and, and now had to be on the prophet's hand to do it. 
And that's Saul. That is, that is the people's king, the one that the human people had before him. And, and what a failure he was. Man, it is, it is only a few years into his reign that he's already been, um, had the favor of God removed from him, told that the, 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 the kingdom will be taken from him, that someone else will be anointed. It was that quick. It was because his heart was not aligned with God. Any human standards that you want to equate someone to, if they're not aligned with God, ultimately their, their end is destruction. And that's just the reality. Anything, anything apart from God, that's the ultimate goal. But God then brings in his chosen human king. And we can put up slide 13, um, or the next slide. And so the king after God's own heart, and this was David. So with all the failure of, 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 of Saul, God calls, while Saul is still reigning, by the way, calls Samuel to anoint the next king. And he calls him to the house of a man named Jesse. Um, and again, to kind of weave the narrative, Jesse was the grandson of Ruth, or the grandson of Boaz, who was married to Ruth, but they're both, they're both the grandparents. Um, and Ruth has a book named after her in the Bible. So that is the, that's, that's kind of this threading of, of God's narrative and people. If someone's in, the, in Scripture, it's important, especially the Old Testament. There's a lot of weaving of, of this lineage. Um, and so out of this household, God calls uh, Samuel to anoint David. And so what's really specific here is juxtaposing what, who Saul was, this tall, powerful, jock quarterback guy, and then David who was the youngest of all his brothers. He was ruddy and in the field. When Samuel went to um, uh, Jesse's house to anoint the king, Samuel wasn't even one of the ones that, that Jesse brought in. He brought all the older brothers. He was like, it's got to be one of these guys. I mean, look at them. They're, they're stacked. They're big. They're, they're, they're more of the jocks. And then Samuel passes before them. And the Lord's like, that's not the one. That's not the one. And finally, Samuel goes to all the brothers in the house. And he goes, Do you, are you sure? God called me here for one of your sons. Are you sure you don't have another kid? He goes, well, there's David. He's the shepherd boy and the pastor. He's the youngest one. And that's who God was calling. That's who God wanted Samuel to anoint. It wasn't the one that the world would have thought, but it's the one that the Lord had called. And it was all about David's heart. Um, David was very successful from the start. We can put this on the next slide. Just some of the successes. I'm, I'm heavily abbreviating here, but I'm just hitting some highlights. Um, so he's taken to Saul's service from a young age because he is skilled with the harp. Uh, David's skill of the heart was able to soothe the king's suffering after the Lord had departed from him. He defeats Goliath. I mean, this is probably the most famous story in the world. Like, I, I, I want to say the gospel is, but I think, honestly, more people in other regions might know about a David versus Goliath story. We want the gospel to be number one. But David versus Goliath is a very common story mentioned all throughout the world. He was a renowned warrior of song. People would sing praises of the warrior David and how he was better than King Saul. And you can imagine how that made that prideful man feel. He was not happy. Um, and then he was anointed the king of Judah. So before David took his full kingdom, um, after Saul had, had, had died, he was anointed the king of Judah and, and reigned there. And then a war of secession happened. I mean, the, the, the lineage of, of Saul was not ready to give up the throne. So David actually had a fight to unify the kingdom once again. Um, and after he'd done that, been, been named the king of all of Israel, a unified nation, um, he, first thing he did, one of the first things he did was bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So this vital piece of, of culture, of history within Israel was finally back where it belonged in the capital. And this is, this is just the start of, of who David was. He was this amazing person um, that was longing after the Lord. And, and we're not going to get to it today, but he also had flaws, so... All people have flaws. Y'all are aware of some of them, but I would read his story a little bit more if you really want to get more of that narrative. Um, and we can go ahead and put up there the, the next slide. 
oh yeah, I'm gonna say this again. That that David's success and and his favor was found because he was always seeking God first. He wasn't worried about the people. Yeah, he was king over them, but but he was king because God had placed him there. I mean, he was king because his heart was longing for the Lord. He wasn't king again because he was this great, mighty man that looked great. He was, but he was there because of his favor found in the Lord, because of his love for him, because of the way he sought him. I mean, imagine you're king, and the first thing you do is, you know, I. Saul goes out, fights these wars, builds a statue himself. David's like, I want to bring this ark, this, this thing that's been so, f- it, was in, it was in the country, but it was not in the capital. I want to bring it here, and I'm going to dance in the streets, and I'm going to have my wife make fun of me, and I'm going to say, I'm going to be more undignified. That's the type of person he was. He didn't care about the opinion of his people because he cared about the opinion of God and his heart after God. And because of this, because of the favor that God had in David, he does something special. And the next slide, he makes a covenant, the Davidic covenant, with, with, with David. And this is super important. Um, there's lots of covenants throughout the Old Testament. I'm sure y'all have covered a few. Um, uh, but the Davidic is specifically, it's a partially a continuation of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. There's pieces of that, of, of God's chosen people that follow through. There's also some unique points that make the Davidic covenant special. Um, something special, especially with David as a person and also his lineage. Um, so we're going to read, now we're jumping into 2 Samuel. So we skipped a good bit. If you, we skipped a lot of stuff. So if you want to read that, I encourage you to. Um, but now we're in 2 Samuel, and we're going to start in, uh, in, in chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. So we'll start in verse 8. If I can find verse 8. Okay. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint you a place for my people, and I will plant them, so they will dwell in their place, place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. And will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits inequity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Man, this is the word of God. And thanks be to God for what he's done in this. So what we see in the Davidic covenant is kind of these three things I want to point out. So obviously it's still continuation of land, promise, blessings from, from the Mosaic and the Abrahamic. But there's these three distinct things. And the, and the first one we see is he, he's going to establish a permanent and secure Israel. Um, and, and this is something we look back and we go, okay, he kind of did it, right? And there's a lot of the Davidic co- covenant. You look back and you go, well, it kind of happened. But there's pointing to something more. It's, it's always pointing to something more. So God makes Israel a place of peace while David was reigning. I mean, they had wars, but Israel was secure. Even into his son Solomon, they were still a great nation. Um, the second one is that he will make David's house 
which means his, his dynasty, right? Again, Game of Thrones, House Targaryen or something like that. That's their family, right? He will make them great. Um, and again, we see this partially through, through his son uh, Solomon. And Solomon reigned well for a time o- over Israel before he was kind of led astray. And then this last one is this really, really important one is that from his lineage would come a special ruler, a king like none of the ones that ever came before, who would be to God a son, and to God would be his father. And so I, I think most of us in our church people, but, but this, this is pointing to Jesus. Man, man, this is the covenant that God made with David because of the way he sought him, that, that from the physical lineage the body, the family, the blood of David will become the savior. And obviously at this time, and we see it in the New Testament too, like they think this is just the savior of, of Israel. Like he's going to come in and be the special kingdom and we're going to reign physically. That's what it's about. But then God gives us Christ. And we can put this last slide up here as, as we kind of come into what's the most important part, right? The internal King Jesus. Man, all of scripture, everything that we read, this narrative that's being woven, the greatest story ever, the gospel isn't just what we read in the New Testament. It's all of it. Because all of it is pointing towards Christ. Every bit of scripture, the end goal is Jesus Christ. From the time of Genesis to the kings, to the cycles, through the exile, it's always pointing to Jesus. And so when God is talking about kingship, when God was talking from the beginning about how a king will be over Israel, he is talking ultimately about Jesus, the eternal king. And the blessing about this too is when you first read this, you go, that's going to be great, man. Israel's going to have a great leader one day, good for them. God brought him for everyone the king of all things. And, and yes, I do believe that, that Jesus will reign in a special way over a physical Israel one day, for a time. But, but, God, but Jesus is still reigning right now. This, 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 special, this special now, not yet. God, Jesus is reigning from the time he lived and died. He's still reigning now. And he'll come and he'll reign again. He's going to reign eternal. God made man. I think this is the beautiful, beautiful part of God's plan for a king. He gave us the king of that was the people's king, Saul. He failed. He gave us David, the, the human king that was after his own heart who ultimately also failed, and he gave us Solomon, and there's a huge lineage and a breaking apart of Israel from these human kings. Then ultimately God says, I'm going to once again be your king. Man, these human kings have failed. From the beginning, my goal was to be your king, but y'all rejected me, Israel rejected me. Now I'm going to become man. I'm going to be born as a baby to this carpenter, and I'm going to become the king over everything eternally. You know, going back to the start, I've always been opposed to monarchies. You know, I think they're not the most effective form of government. But now, we're going to live in a monarchy forever. That's kind of reality. God, God has implemented himself as king. Jesus Christ is going to reign over us, and that's the government we're going to have. And it's going to be amazing. There's, there's something special when, when God is, is the one in charge, when God is the one giving us structure and giving us commands, and, and, and it's amazing. And that is the government that God has designed for us, Jesus Christ reigning over us, God made man reigning over us. And I just want us to sit in that and think about that. I mean, as, as, you, as you think about your day, I know as young adults, man, everything can kind of seem out of control. Like maybe you're just one paycheck away from, I don't even know where I'm going to live. I have to move back in with my parents. Maybe you're in a state where 
You're thinking about moving jobs, but that's not secure. You don't know where the Lord's going to call you next. Jesus Christ, the eternal king, is reigning right now. He's going to reign forevermore. And he's the one who your life and your goals and everything that's going to happen is in his hands. And he's good. He loves you intimately, deeply. He knows who you are before you ever knew him. And he longs to to love you and be with you. And one day we're going to see him in, in, in the eternal state beyond. But now we get to live in that too. And I just want to remind you of that promise, that reality of God reigning, of Jesus Christ being our king. Um, and I hope you all can just be blessed by that as I kind of close into prayer if you want to bow your heads with me. And Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your story, um, for, for the narrative that you've been writing from the beginning as we hear about um, kings, Father, when we hear about the, the people that you've placed over Israel. Ultimately, you're talking about Christ and the way that he is going to reign special, a special way eternally over not only Israel but the whole world, his people, Father. We're so blessed that, that you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take mediocrity uh, as, as anything less. So you became man so you could become king, Father. That you keep your promises. You made this covenant with David and you fulfilled it in a way that no one could imagine because you became part of it. Father, your gospel, the truth of scripture is so beautiful. I pray that we can rest in that. I pray that we can rest in the hands, the secure hands of our heavenly king, our heavenly savior, Father. As you reign over us, Lord, I pray that brings us security. Now, as you reign in a special way, Lord, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit and give us that supernatural comfort and rest, Father, as as we trust in in your guidance and your hand and your sovereignty over everything. We lift this up in your son's name. Amen.